I'm Sarah Hooper. And I'm Arika Smith. You're listening to Contraindicated, a podcast dedicated to rethinking the systems that perpetuate health injustice. This program has been made possible by the UCSF UC Hastings Consortium on Law, Science, and Health Policy. In this episode of Contraindicated, we have a discussion with two guests. Michelle Porsche is an associate professor in the UCSF Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences and the associate director of community outreach for the Schwab Dyslexia and Cognitive Diversity Center. One of her areas of research looks at the relationship between what are called ACEs and poor educational outcomes like dropout rates. ACEs, a term you'll hear referenced in the discussion, stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. Some examples of ACEs include experiencing or witnessing violence, or experiencing physical, sexual, or emotional abuse, or having a family member with a drug or alcohol addiction. Although these experiences are often made worse by poverty, children across socioeconomic status have these types of experiences. Our second guest, Andrea Lolini, is a senior research scholar at the UCSF UC Hastings Consortium for Law, Science, and Health Policy, and an adjunct professor of law. Andrea has a completely different background. While Michelle is examining the relationship between neurodiversity, trauma, and adversity from the lens of behavioral science, Andrea is examining the implications of neurodiversity as it relates to equality and the law. He specializes in international law, and his work centers on understanding the legal status rights, and health of neurodiverse populations. Historically, people with different developmental and language abilities have been understood within the framework of disability. Andrea's work reconsiders this historical framing, instead seeking a construction of rights, constitutional equality, and anti-discrimination. I want to welcome Andrea and Michelle to the show today. Hello. Thanks for having Hello. us. It's our pleasure. So today is a big day because I finally get to learn what Bench to School is all about. Uh, the comms department first caught wind of this new initiative probably six weeks ago, maybe. And then when we tried to learn more, wall. We got a wall. No one would tell us anything at all. It was top secret. Not even internal comms could know. And we, despite our best efforts of being persuasive and learning what this program is, which we understand is quite an important new initiative, everyone kept it under wraps until now. So, Sarah, what is Bench to School? Can you give me the overview? I'm so excited. Yeah, so our guests can certainly uh, provide a much more in-depth overview of of this program than I can. But what's really exciting about this new initiative, it's called the California Bench to School Initiative. And it is a multi-stakeholder statewide initiative to disrupt what is called the school to prison pipeline. And the school to prison pipeline is the idea that some of us end up in prisons instead of continuing through our normal um, educational trajectory. And the reason that we end up in prisons instead of schools and then careers is really related to social injustice, right? 
And a constellation of factors, um, including learning disabilities, including early adverse childhood experiences or ACEs, poverty, neighborhood factors, a number of other things that our guests can say more about than I can. But really the goal behind this project is to get stakeholders in the UCs, in the education system, in the prison system together to think about how we can understand this problem better and then disrupt it and help every kid, every person in California achieve their highest potential through the educational system instead of the prison system. So I'm absolutely delighted that the, you know, the, the heads, <laughs> two of the heads of this project are with us today, um, Andrea Lalini and Michelle Porsche, and they say a little bit more. Thank you both so much for being Thank here. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. So what should folks know about the work you've been doing and where you see, where are you going to start? <laughs> How do we start to tackle this problem? I think one of the, you know, for me, the most important place to start is to really find out from stakeholders, kids, youth, their families who may be impacted by involvement in the juvenile justice system, you know, what has been their trajectory in school and into the justice system? What do they need now? This is really important for California as they're moving away from detention facilities and having youth really be in the community if they become justice involved. So, you know, I see that as our first months out with this project is really to hear from the community. There have been some, uh, there have there has been some work done already to speak with people in the Justice Department about concerns for youth and what may happen with the changes in the in the system. But we need to know more from the school side, and again, you know, really to hear from the youth and families. I hope that this is going to be a very youth centered project, even if it is the bench. You know, basic science to school, like how we create curriculum that will really support uh, students being able to identify uh, special education needs or any other supports for learning and literacy. And a very important component of this is also mental health. So being able to recognize impact of trauma, adverse childhood experiences, which, you know, actually all the kids in California have experienced um, working through a pandemic where many of them may have experienced loss firsthand. So, you know, you can see this can roll out into a very complex set of factors that may influence kids' academic success. And I'll pass over to Andrea to talk about, you know, some early pilot work. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to have this uh, conversation with you uh, today. So I would try to start by like to highlight, I would say two pillars of our idea. The first one is like, I try to be uh, like very simple in describing the two pillars, but the first one is, is slightly more theoretical. So there's a, a theoretic idea behind how we design the initiative. And then there's a structural part, the theoretic part, theoretical part. So it's a very fascinating scientific questions in science, in psychology, and in neurosciences. That is, where do behaviors come from? And especially, 
where do legally relevant behaviors come from? So which means behavior at a certain point acquire a legal relevance. That is the things that mostly we mostly see in court. And in science, especially with the help of neurosciences, we are discovering more and more how much what we call environmental, social environmental factors are able to deform the capability, the ability of individuals to behave or those kind of factors might create very specific type of behaviors that our system retain relevant for the legal system. So most of the things that we see in court. So which are those behavior, those social environmental factors? There's the numbers of them. And science is trying more and more to understand how much those factors are able to deform the capacity of people, citizens to produce specific type of behaviors. And Michelle and Sarah, they started to list this crucial uh, number of potential factors, trauma, abuse, neglect, discrimination, are those things that make an important and, and, and a crucial impact on, on people. And from that moment on, also the behavior associate, associated with the result of those factors can be like very specific type of behaviors that we, we, we might consider relevant. So that's the, the big theoretical part. And it's, any, it's a challenge that we are doing uh, at UC Hastings, uh, thanks to the consortium, with a lot of like new partners in, 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 uh, in medical schools at the University of California, UCSF and UCLA. It's a learning process. We have to learn how to talk together, to exchange views, understanding someone else's vocabulary that is in science and different in law. It's a very long and fascinating challenge, but we are trying to do that. The second part of the initiative, I would say, is structural. Because if we just focus on the juvenile justice systems in California, we understand that we are talking about a very complex and articulated system. It's a galaxy of mechanism uh, that is based basically on the retributive part of the system, that is the classic one, that is obviously having a judge, a court, and the old systems that brings uh, an accused to be possibly also detained, but also there's the parole part, which means that the systems that accept that certain people are not immediately de detained and they, they can go through an entire process that is monitored by state officials and judges. And then also there's what we call the diverse, what the, the, the California systems call the diversion program, which means specific type, in this case of juveniles that are in contact with the juvenile justice systems, they are put in specific state programs that can be like all different type of, 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 of programs about mental health, learning. There's so many things that can be involved. So we were starting to dig into a very complex system but with the idea that try to reverse the school to prison pipeline was abs an absolute uh, priority for the state of California. First of all, from the scientific point of view, because we have the first theoretical question in our mind, and we'd, we'd like to acquire as much data as possible to help this new adventure. But also because we know that the system is extremely expensive, the judicial system is extremely expensive, and also in this way, we are losing year after year an incredible human potential, which means thousands of, of potentially incredible uh, talented 
people that in some way were in contact with social environmental factors, they made them produce some kind of behaviors that the legal systems retain uh, relevant. So I have two follow-ups. One, I think it's important to note the populations and the, the people who are more likely to end up in the legal system and the, that we're, you're trying to prevent um, from ending up in this school-to-prison pipeline that you've referenced. I'd also uh, love it if you could illuminate why bench to school. I'm trying to understand the name because this sounds mm -hmm. important to the initiative. Let me, I want to talk a little bit first around what is really disproportionately applied harsh discipline to Black and Latino children in our school system nationwide. And that's an issue in California as well, where, you know, you might have a child who's struggling and struggling with school. And instead of being appropriately assessed for learning challenges and receiving appropriate supports ends up in detention, suspension, you know. So, you know, as much as we can learn about how the brain works, there's, you know, that's on top of really understanding discriminatory practices in our schools. It's really important that teachers have really a good training around literacy, language development, how to recognize uh, um, conditions like dyslexia, for instance, which is a real central piece of this, and um, how to provide appropriate supports for children who may have something like dyslexia and how that interrupts their reading. So we can't solve the other part of, you know, really understanding how the brain works if we don't understand the social context that kids are in in our nation's schools. And it's, you know, particularly for California. For the bench piece, you know, there's this idea about bench science. So that's really understanding the scientific details of a phenomenon you know, may not lead exactly immediately to an intervention, but it's really about understanding that. In fact, most um, projects, when you're really looking at bench science, it may take 17 years for something to move into like a practical uh, intervention. We're hoping that this is going to be much sooner. We don't have 17 years and these kids don't have 17 years, but there are components of this, which will be, you know, very extensive, comprehensive look at cognitive abilities for kids who may be on this trajectory into juvenile justice or are involved at this point. And Andrea, Andrea, I'd let you say more about the, the bench piece. So you've been doing more of that. Yeah, the bench piece is like, I would try to keep the things very simple and in order to be like understandable and open up the debate with you. So in the United States, so I, a small biographical uh, data, I, I'm from Europe, and the systems in Europe has two pillars. It is healthcare is public and education is public, which means that you don't spend any money to go to school. You can, you can become a doctor with a very limited amount of fees that anybody can pay. 
And that's the same thing for the healthcare system, because all the resources that you need to sustain both system education and healthcare are provided through taxation. And everybody pays taxes and everybody contributes to, to the budget that, that is needed, both for healthcare and for public education. We are talking about two core, extremely sensitive areas for making, letting the people growing up and developing as a citizen, being healthy and being capable to learn and live in a complex society as we are designing more and more every year. So if we think about the United States, if you have something in your life experience that doesn't make you, doesn't give you the capacity, capability to learn in, in the proper way and to translate your natural intelligence into something that the system needs, that is your capacity to read, write documents, filling up, filling out forms, going through more and more complex uh, skills that the people need in our complex society, that's something that is extremely disadvantageous for people. And, and if we start piling up all the factors of disadvantage, starting from the life experience, the family experience, the discriminations, being in foster care, all those things that a lot of the juvenile in California, uh, juvenile involved in the juvenile justice systems have in their uh, biographies on top of it, there's also some kind of inability to really performing well in school. Those kind of kids, those kind of juveniles, they have, they don't have any chance to demonstrate in society their capacity and having a place in the society. From that moment on, we can understand a lot of dysfunctional behaviors. So the idea that we had is exactly this one. What can we do? What can we know scientifically in terms of capacity to create uh, very specific programs for uh, making the people learning faster and better, depending from their uh, cognitive profiles. What can we do in terms of skills that can be transferred to the education system? So making our teachers like even more capable than they are right now, not because we are not saying that they are bad, but science is going fast. We have way more information that can be transferred fastly into the educational systems and then what can we do to, tra to transfer this knowledge into the justice system in itself attorneys judges clerks all the people working in this huge bu bureaucracy in order to be more aware about the potential elements that they can have to evaluate when they come across in a specific type of of accused uh, juvenile within the system so it's also an idea of making the pillars in our society to communicate between each other by transferring informations that are extremely valuable. And obviously science is behind because science is the one that is like uh, having questions, having like hypotheses and, and being eager to try to get answer to those questions. So it's really, I mean, it's such a complex problem and it sounds like a couple of threads I'm hearing on the one hand, we have folks who, because of early childhood disadvantage, have disabilities that make learning in our current educational system in the U.S. hard for them. And so one idea is how can we help folks adapt to the system that we have? But then another thread, and Michelle, tell me if I heard this correctly, is that the system is not well adapted for them and has... That's the threads. one. Yeah, and has yeah. a threat of discrimination 
that is separate and apart from any that is cumulative to any kind of learning disability that folks might have. And we're trying to untangle and address both of those ends of the problem. Do, do I have that right? Yeah, both of those can be true. And yeah, we, we do have to really think about our s- system. I think like that's one of the, the rich opportunities in this initiative is to really partner with um you know, a school of education, a, you know, department in psychiatry, a law center, the California state school systems that it, that um, does a lot of teacher training and, and really thinking about uh, addressing this issue from a number of different perspectives. So it's not just one study, but multiple studies that we hope we'll be able to conduct so in all of this work to really inform the development of a curriculum for teachers to train attorneys, yes, in the law system, to think about how mental health providers, you know, school-based mental health can better serve kids. You know, that really is a, a tough question. There is an association between, let's say, ACEs and kids being more likely to have special education needs. We don't know exactly, you know, I'm not sure we're at the point where we can talk about causation. The exposure to ACEs make make kids more vulnerable to having challenges in learning later on. So maybe, you know, maybe get to that being the bench part. That's like the scientific part where, yeah, we really want to know more about causation but the important thing is to understand the phenomenon and be able to develop interventions as well. For the listeners, I'll say again that ACE stands for Adverse Childhood Experience, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And let me give you some examples of what those are. This was a study that was um, uh, it was conducted by researchers in California uh, through one of the Kaiser healthcare systems, I think it was in Southern California in uh, 1998. So this has been around for a while, but it's becoming more known now. And researchers asked adults if any of these following um, situations had happened when they were children. So being um, exposed to emotional, physical, or sexual abuse, you know, uh, having an adult in the household that may have had a substance abuse problem, having an adult in the household that was incarcerated, having a parental separation or divorce. So it was um, just uh, issues like that. There were like uh, eight or nine um, uh, situations. And they found that that was related to both physical illness, like heart uh, issues, diabetes, chronic conditions, abuse, and mental health problems. So, and concurrent, you know, um, after that, there's there have been more research conducted with kids, you know, you know, not waiting for adults to do retrospective reporting, but. Um, looking at childhood experiences and seeing what's happening in childhood. So some of my research has, you know, shown that link between exposure to adverse childhood experiences and dropping a, a much greater likelihood of dropping out of high school by way of having I, being identified 
for conduct disorder or being involved in substance use, uh, substance use or abuse. I've also found for children who are have higher um, numbers of adverse childhood experiences, more likelihood of being in um, special education, having been held back a grade, or you know some other other school problems. I'm also wondering if if you could either of you or both of you could more specifically detail the different disciplines that are involved because I think at a high level you you sort of outline that there's you know education school of education or law but that I'd be interested to hear a little bit more about the disciplines that are involved in this monumental and complex research that you're starting to undertake uh, so the network uh, of partners right now is is based on three campuses of the University of California. There's UCLA, UCSF, and uh, um, UC Hastings, that is the law school. Uh, so the, the, the scales of the people involved is like very large. Uh, the, the spectrum of, of skills involved. So uh, I'm, I'm based at UC Hastings, so I'm, I'm a legal expert. But we've been working with clinical psychologists, a neuropsychologist, a speech expert, classic neuroscientist. So people that are normally working on, on these kind of, of conditions and kids are coming across the clinic they, 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 they are working on. So not like specifically type of juvenile, very vulnerable that we decide to address with the initiative. So it's an it's a classic interdisciplinary kind of research team that is combining skills in hard sciences and skills in social sciences and and law. Let me you know maybe give an example of say you know for this study we were interested in kids across grade levels so youngest pre-K to you know kids at you know in high school. But let's imagine really interested in early intervention. So you might have a child who is in first grade where, you know, between first, second, third, you're really learning how to read. First grade, you're, you know, starting to do what they call decoding. You're just trying to understand what the letters are, how to make sounds, how to sound that out. By third grade, you should be reading for comprehension. So it's not just being able to read the words on the page, but to understand what they mean. So one of the things that might happen for kids that age is there's, you know, a number of different tests that may be given to them. Just like when I say tests, like these are assessments, we want to know, can they recognize words? If you give them a, you know, they call it like like a made up word, can they actually make the letter sounds? If you give them different words like a vocabulary test, can they actually, do they actually know what those words mean? If you ask them to spell a word, are they able to spell it? If you have them read a passage and tell you about it, are they able to do that? So those are just some examples of some testing that you might do with a young child. I'll add a couple other other things you might wanna know is like their ability to pay attention. That's really important too right? Do they have some difficulty staying focused? So you might figure out that, you know, they're really good at one thing, like 
vocabulary. They have a strong vocabulary, but they have difficulty sounding out the words. So therefore they have difficulty reading them and they have difficulty understanding when they're supposed to read. Um, so, you know, you take all of this information and you kind of figure out what are their strengths and weaknesses. And you might find if you tested hundreds of children with certain um, common factors or common circumstances, you might say, oh, you know, these kids have some problems in sounding out words. And then we might talk to people at UCLA who are working on developing a curriculum for early teacher training. You know, if you could work on better ways to have teachers train or do instruction with kids around sounding out words and recognizing, um, you know, reading passages with more fluency, you know, maybe that would be better for kids. So, you know, just an example of how this might happen. But also um, integrated with that, really recognizing social and emotional challenges that kids might have. Recognizing maybe teachers' own bias in what they're assuming is going on for kids. If kids are, you know, stubborn about not wanting to be engaged in the classroom, is it because they're misbehaving? Is it because they feel bad about not knowing? Is it because they had a really hard day? getting to school? Is it because other kids are bullying them? You know, at least taking the time to figure out what might be getting in the way of their, you know, really being engaged in learning. So this is where it gets ever more complex and understanding the technical pieces about how best to teach kids how to read, but then also understanding the whole child that's there, you know, that the child can bring their whole self to school be able to talk about the things that are troubling. You know, there's a lot of work around trauma-informed teaching that is really important. And especially now as we're moving through this pandemic, moving through awareness around racial discrimination that came with really understanding what was going on with George Floyd's murder. There's really so much. And yes, as scientists, we're trying to address you know, in its complexity, at least this part about reading disability and reading difficulty, but how that is, you know, embedded in this larger context. Was that helpful? Yeah, it is helpful. I think it's, um, you showed the connections and how one problem can touch uh, or one challenge someone experienced and touch multiple disciplines and how as an initiative, the partnership is really drawing on different people in different schools. I am wondering, how is this funded? Mm. This, this is a big project and yeah, where's the money coming from? This is part of the state of California's budget. So it's an allocation from the state legislature to Hastings, to UCSF, to UCLA and other partners to work together in learning more and addressing this issue. So it's a major state priority and the partners will be reporting back to the state government of California our progress on this work. So there's a, a part of our research that is based on the idea that the legal system in itself, as we think about it, it's basically ba just based on words and sentences. It's just, just that's the law. Everything that is working like, I would say, the operative systems of the legal system is language. 
in every culture. I'm not just talking about the United States. I can talk about every legal systems in Europe, everywhere in the world. Which means that can we think about if we have people that have to go through the systems that they have specifically struggles with language. Which means it's like playing a like basketball game or a soccer game or football game and you struggle with the specific skills that are rewarded by the system, by, by the game in itself. Uh, that's a problem. So it's an open question. We are open, opening up a, a Pandora box. We don't have the answer, but it's interesting to think about it and ask uh, to ask those kind of questions. So what can we do? in order to make the, the, the legal system in itself being, that's the, the, the word that we like, more friendly with an entire set of cognitive diversities of the people that will come across the systems might have. And the learning capacity, the language capacity, the, the learning uh, abilities is one of them. But we're also talking about other type of cognitive diversity variables that the legal system, how it has been designed since century, is penalizing in a way. So we can do a lot of things by understanding better both the systems and how the system reacts, becoming not friendly with specific type of cognitive diversity. We can start coming up with potential suggestions, how making some kind of procedures potentially easier to be understood. Uh, the language, how the people, talk and speak during the procedure, how can the people are instructed? And we know that there's consequences for some kind of actions taken during, during the trial. So the type of instructions that the people might receive might produce different kind of answer, different kind of behavior. So we have to make sure that the people receive the best possible instructions that is based on their cap capacity and capabilities. That's just one set of potential big questions. Obviously, we don't have all the answer, but it's so fascinating. The state of California was interested to start this dialogue and this adventure. And we are here just like to try to help and starting building the first bricks of this new world. So, uh, mm -hmm. and and I've, I have to say, we are focusing on uh, uh, learning abilities, language-based learning disabilities, but we know that we might be able to replicate the same type of theoretical framework for other type of cognitive diversities. Uh, by saying cognitive diversities that we absolutely are not creating any kind of hierarchy between the abilities and the capacity of the people. That's the point. That's one of the big mistakes that all a lot of societies are keep doing, which means that creating a hierarchy between between the capacity and on the base of that, making the people being uh, more or less successful. By trying to understand how the system reacts in a friendly or unfriendly way to a specific type of quantity diversity, we are exactly tackling one of the pillar of the idea of inequality that, that we have, not just in the United States, in every system. And so, not just the legal system, but also the education system. I mean, because what you said about the legal system parallels very directly to the experience um, the children that you're trying to keep out of the justice system later are having when they enter the classroom. 
so your your work sort of point to interventions or help inform interventions along the whole pipeline. So ideally, we're we're addressing these needs and system dysfunction at the kind of early educational level. But in the event folks are still ending up in the criminal justice system, we're providing more tools for judges and for uh, people in that system to understand how we got here and to respond more effectively. Um, so, so your work really is targeted at that whole kind of continuum, which is really exciting. We are working on two potential new theoretical ideas that are behind this uh, um, uh, set of, of components of the, of the initiative. The first one is the idea of brain equality. And the second one is the idea of, of a right of, to a healthy neurodevelopment, which means that the, our democratic systems, not just in California, the United States, I'm, I'm talking about something that is really global because we can replicate this exact the same things in Europe, is based on the fact that in order to be a citizen, a full citizen, competent and being able to work in the systems and make decisions, you have to be uh, given the right to make your brain developing healthy. That's the idea of neurodevelopment. It's a long uh, trajectory. It's a long process that all of us are doing, but we know in, from science that there's a lot of things that may deform this uh, natural trajectory of neurodevelopment that makes all the brain uh, developing, structuring, growing in a healthy way. So we are living in democracy that make the people accountable for their action, but sometime, or most of the time, we are not recognizing the fact that not all the citizens had, had the same chance to have a healthy neurodevelopment. So that's the point, which means that our idea is that we should try to get as much data as possible about how many factors can deform the neurodevelopment because we would like to start talking about this idea of a right of a healthy neurodevelopment that is based on the idea of a brain equality, which means that we have to trade the brain in a way that is capable to uh, play the game of equality um, Otherwise, we're going to have like a, 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 a situation in which the people have different um, opportunity capacities uh, based on the experience that they had, and that can be extremely unfair. I think it's important to acknowledge that you're taking this from an angle of trying to improve certain systems to support the individuals and those being education and related to language and reading and neurodiversity, but that this doesn't necessarily address the larger systemic issues related to entities that may benefit from the pipeline to prisons, that other systemic forces that create policies, you know, that disadvantage certain populations. So I just want to acknowledge that this is a piece of a, a broader puzzle um, related to inequality and systemic injustice in our country. Yes, absolutely. I want to just close with asking you one last question, which is, will you um, share with us when you have it, the ways that the community can get involved because clearly you really are going to, you started in Michelle by talking about the need to listen and gather and yes. engage the community and understand. And I would love 
for us to be able to share the resource and the information and the opportunity for people to get involved in this so that you have the best chance possible to understand and move this forward. Absolutely. We will definitely do that. Um, I've reached out to some local um, community-based organizations now that work with youth who are just as involved. But, you know, we, as we're able to do like um, additional wider outreach, we will definitely share that information. Really, in, in for invitation is what is what we would like. And and the other thing I just want to underscore is that it's really important to us that we have stakeholder leadership oversight on this project as well, so that we have an advisory board that is, you know, can have some representation of youth and families who are justice involved. It's also important to understand that there's so many incredible, effective and performing stakeholders nowadays, today in California, providing like incredible, I, I mean, support, uh, interventions, ideas. But sometimes it's extremely complicated to put all those potential extremely good stakeholders and actors in a, in a network. So one of the ideas is to start this work of mapping who's doing incredible things out there that may be helpful just by creating a network of knowledge that we know that there's somebody doing uh, something that is potentially uh, extremely supportive, but maybe now the systems doesn't know the existence of them. So one of the things is just also one of the idea would be to create a network of existing organization, associations, community-based, whatever it is already doing things and, and they might be transferred in a more wide way in the state or making the, the, the systems working in partnership. And we think that that can be very extremely important because it's a way of managing or capitalizing the, the work and resources that are already used in the state. Andrea, Michelle, thank you so much for coming on Contraindicated and sharing all of this great information about the Bench to School Initiative. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so, so much. For resources and info related to this episode and to listen to other episodes, please visit uchastings.edu forward slash health and justice. Thank you for tuning in to Contraindicated. Contraindicated.